sending an urgent SOS to Congress. This week on Planetary Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan. That SOS came from thousands of people who want to save our science, specifically by avoiding the deep cuts in space science funding proposed by NASA, with the money going to the space shuttle for completion of the International Space Station. We'll hear from the man heading the SOS campaign, Planetary Society Executive Director Lou Friedman, recently returned from Washington, where he and other prominent spokespeople laid out their case for members of Congress and their staffs. Helping to make that case were Bill Nye and filmmaker James Cameron. Bruce Betts will drop by later with a look at the night sky. He'll also note this week's historic significance for hot little sister planet Venus, just before he delivers the new trivia contest. Here are some of the stories making space news this week, beginning with the International Space Station. All three of the current tenants took a walk around the neighborhood last week, a long one. During a a six-and-a-half-hour spacewalk, they did a bunch of general upkeep and repair and retrieved a canister that is part of an experiment that exposed microorganisms to the, shall we say, harsh space environment. No word yet on what has been learned from the little critters. Back on terra firma, NASA announced that it has awarded a contract to Lockheed Martin for support of the 2009 Mars Science Laboratory mission. The aerospace company will provide an Atlas V rocket that will boost the big rover to the red planet. Once there, the MSL will look for the building blocks of life as it travels much further than spirit and opportunity. And speaking of those two highly accomplished little ladies, you'll find a comprehensive update on their missions at planetary.org. Now that Spirit has settled in for the winter on a spot called Low Ridge, that's near McCool Hill, you know, in the Columbia Hills area of Gusev Crater. Anyway, from this new perch, the rover is examining its surroundings in greater detail than ever before attempted. After all, it's not going anywhere for a good long while. Meanwhile, opportunity was rolling right along during most of May, covering about 100 meters a week. Kept up that pace till May 29th, when it once more found itself mired in a meridiani sand dune. So the science team is using this temporary break to do much the same kind of detailed survey Spirit is doing on the other side of the planet. They'll keep it up at least until the engineers get the rover unstuck, as they are confident they will. Emily Lakdawalla is up next. She mailed us a great postcard of Old Faithful's cousin on Neptune's moon, Triton. I'll be right back with Lou Friedman. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, What causes the geysers on Neptune's moon, Triton? Triton was one of the many surprising worlds that Voyager 2 surveyed on its grand tour of the solar system. Icy worlds at Neptune's distance from the Sun have surface temperatures only 40 Kelvin above absolute zero, so you'd expect them to be cold and dead. But Triton presented a very smooth surface with ridges and spots and without many craters, similar to Jupiter's moon Europa. Most astonishing, though, was the discovery of towering geysers of black gas spewing 8 kilometers into the sky in Triton's southern hemisphere, making the icy world only the third in the solar system, after Earth and Jupiter's moon Io to be caught in the throes of geologic activity. Saturn's moon Enceladus is now the fourth on that list. 
So what can possibly cause geologic activity on a world so cold? Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out. The last decade or so has seen advances in space science that have thrilled thousands of scientists and tens of millions of laypeople. Robotic adventures throughout our solar system have inspired an entire generation of young people to study science and engineering. Could the American effort be coming to an end, or at the very least a period of hibernation? With a 30-year commitment to space science and exploration, the Planetary Society decided to act. Its SOS, or Save Our Science campaign, has received international coverage and is raising eyebrows in the nation's capital. The Society's executive director and co-founder, Lou Friedman, leads the effort to reverse NASA's budget recommendations to Congress. He has been on the road more than he has been at home in the last couple of weeks. We asked Lou for an update just as he was about to board yet another plane. Lou, I'm glad you could take a minute before you uh, leave for for Europe to tell us, uh, give us a status report on the SOS campaign. It's not that long ago that you're back from Washington, D.C., that's right, Matt. It was uh, just uh, a little more than a week ago that uh, uh, we had a rather intense day of lobbying, and uh, and and it was, uh, and I use the word proudly because I think it was the best part of lobbying. You know, uh, trying to influence Congress to uh, do something which uh, we consider very positive, basically to save our science, to save NASA space science from uh, uh, really large budget cuts that the administration is planning over the next uh, several years. Uh, we had uh, James Cameron, the uh, director of Titanic, and, uh, and a noted uh, now IMAX uh, documentary maker with his Aliens of the Deep, back with us. Uh, and we're really grateful to Jim for joining the Society's efforts and, and being part of our, our overall effort to uh, restore NASA science and, and to get an Europa mission started. Uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, our vice president, uh, Dr. Heidi Hamill, a noted planetary scientist, was with us of course, myself, and we uh, had a room full of congressional staff. We made a, a strong pitch on the whole program, uh, and it was noted that Congressman uh, John Culberson, from, a Republican from Texas, uh, who feels he's a champion of the Europa mission, came in and joined us and gave a stirring talk uh, about his support, felt he was lobbying us rather than us lobbying him. He's on the House yeah. Appropriations Committee. So uh, that was quite important, and... Uh, uh, we gave him a copy of our petition to Congress uh, with uh, thousands of members having signed a petition to restore NASA space science, and we presented that to both the House and Senate Appropriations Committee. I heard that the presentation of the briefing that this uh, team gave uh, was, was quite popular among the congressional staffers. It was very popular. A lot of them were conditioned by the fact that they saw our ad in the Washington Post earlier that day, a really stunning ad that says... Uh, don't trash space science showing pictures of the planets uh, in the trash can, because that's actually what's going to happen if this budget goes through. And uh, I know uh, uh, listeners of our radio program can see it on our website at planetary.org. We met with Senator Barbara Mikulski. In fact, uh, rather extraordinarily, she invited uh, Jim Cameron, uh, Bill Nye, and myself to a private meeting in her office, and she showed the ad uh, to us and said it was just... Uh, just really great. In fact, she autographed it and said, uh, to the Planetary Society, thanks for being in the right orbit. <laughs> That's uh, clever. Uh, she's a strong supporter of space science. In fact, I would call her the leader in the U.S. Senate uh, in favor of space science. 
and we're going to need her support. She's the ranking minority on the Senate Appropriations Committee. I guess we should we can mention that she has the John Hopkins uh, APL in her uh, in her district. So there's there's that interest in this for her as well. She's also serving her constituents, but uh, but clearly she's uh, someone who uh, keeps track of what's happening in space science. Well, she has more than uh, John uh, than APL. She has, of course, NASA Goddard, uh, and of course, uh, many other government facilities in the, in mm. the state of Maryland: National Institutes of Health, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, as well as NASA centers and uh, and the uh, Applied Physics Lab. So, of course, she does have a, a strong constituent interest. And uh, uh, what I liked uh, very much and appreciated, uh, we were three Californians who were visiting her, and. Uh, uh, there was not a hint of the well. The only hint I would say of uh, uh, state bias was that she uh, was very nice in extolling the virtues of, of, of Maryland crab cakes. <laughs> How has the media reaction been? The uh, space media, I think, has uh, been somewhat startled by our campaign. Usually, it's the aerospace industry and some of the more vested interests in the professional community that are campaigning in this sort of diffuse science interest, which I think many of them expected the uh, not to uh, raise too many uh, protests, uh, I think has uh, caught them a little off guard. Uh, even the NASA administrator has uh, reacted somewhat defensively about it. In his heart, he's a strong supporter of robotic space exploration and space science. He's made cuts that uh, he thinks uh, he has no other choice about. Of course, we think differently. But uh, he's reacted very negatively to the fact that the science community is, uh, uh, to my, uh, I'm surprised that he thinks this way, but uh, he thinks the science community is, uh, should be uh, more accepting of these budget cuts. Which, uh, I guess, in, in, in his defense, he says, don't worry as soon as uh, we can, as soon as the shuttle is back uh, flying and we finish the ISS, uh, we're going to restore funding to science. Well, that's a common uh, thread. In fact, that goes right back to the days the Planetary Society was formed. We heard that in 1980 when the shuttle was getting built. Don't mm-hmm. worry, it'll be soon cheap access to space and you'll get lots of missions. Uh, what happened, of course, was that the uh, planetary exploration stopped in the 1980s. There were no missions that were launched or approved uh, in that time period. And it took uh, a good 15 years of recovery. Uh, you can, many, many of your uh, listeners will probably remember the U.S. Mars program after Viking stopped for some 15 years until the mid-1990s before it was uh, uh, restored again. It's always easy to say, uh, let us solve this problem, we'll get back to you later. But nothing goes that smoothly. And I think if we can't have a balanced program, and worse than that, we'll lose the public support. I think that's what NASA and the administration is, doesn't understand. The public support for NASA in the last uh, 10 years has been built around things like Hubble and the Mars Exploration Rover and Cassini-Huygens and Deep Impact and, and discovering planets around other stars. These are the things that, that has carried the uh, public interest in space exploration. And if they now say, let's put it aside while we build some more rockets... They're going to lose that uh, that public momentum they have. What is the status? Where are we with this effort now? And uh, are we talking as uh, Congress is uh, getting close to taking action or not taking action? Well, the House of 
Appropriations Committee will mark up in uh, just a couple of weeks uh, here in mid-June, and uh, that will be the first major step. If we can get some funding restored for science, that will be a victory, but it won't be the final one. And I don't know how that's going to come out. As I say, there are strong interests in the other directions. The Senate markup for appropriations probably won't be until uh, late January. Senator Mikulski has a strategy, which uh, we're very supportive of. Basically, it's uh, trying to get some new funds for the emergency on the space shuttle that would uh, relieve the need for NASA to rob science in order to pay for the shuttle. Uh, and then uh, probably after the Senate marks up, it'll still be another month maybe into September or even October, before the House-Senate differences are resolved and uh, a final bill is produced. Planetary Society Executive Director Lou Friedman. We'll hear more from Lou about the Save Our Science campaign and other topics when Planetary Radio returns. This is Buzz Aldrin. When I walked on the moon, I knew it was just the beginning of humankind's great adventure in the solar system. That's why I'm a member of the Planetary Society, the world's largest space interest group. The Planetary Society is helping to explore Mars. We're tracking near-Earth asteroids and comets. We sponsor the search for life on other worlds, and we're building the first-ever solar sail. We didn't just build it. We attempted to put that first solar sail in orbit, and we're going to try again. You can read about all our exciting projects and get the latest space exploration news in-depth at the Society's exciting and informative website, planetary.org. You can also preview our full-color magazine, The Planetary Report. It's just one of our many member benefits. Want to learn more? Call us at 1-877-PLANETS. That's toll-free, 1-877-752-6387. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. Our guest is the Planetary Society's Executive Director, Lou Friedman. Lou recently led a team into the halls of Congress to talk about the Save Our Science campaign the Society's effort to avoid drastic cuts in funding for space science. The money saved would go to the soon-to-be-retired space shuttle to help it complete the International Space Station. Lou was just describing Maryland Senator Barbara Mikulski's proposal to make an emergency appropriation for the shuttle that could save scores of science missions and projects. Mikulski, I guess, talk to you about this, these emergency funds, and apparently something similar was done after the, uh, the Challenger accident? That's right. So extraordinarily uh, large amounts of money had to be required to get the shuttle back to flight. And after the Challenger accident, uh, emergency funds were given to NASA for that purpose. That was not done after the Columbia accident. Uh, and uh, when NASA presented the budget this year, they said, we're taking money from science in order to pay for the shuttle, which not only represents, uh, as far as uh, we're concerned, an investment in the past, something that's already committed for retirement, but uh, opens up the uh, doors to uh, continued raids on science over the years for uh, if this is going to continue. So the appropriateness of, of coming up with an emergency supplement if we want the shuttle to return to flight is uh, seems to me correct and right on, and uh, uh, I think Senator Mikulski's strategy puts it right to the administration. Do we want the shuttle to fly again? Then provide the funds for it. If you don't, to provide the funds for it and don't rate science in order to do it. So I guess people can continue to track this issue at uh, planetary.org. We're uh, going to stay on top of it. Uh, we've gathered a lot of support. Our ad 
articles uh, in the Washington Post were signed by uh, three Nobel Prize winners. Uh, we've uh, had broad support among uh, not just scientists but uh, uh, the public. I think uh, there's a great deal of understanding. And, and I've got to say one other thing about this, this understanding. We are for human spaceflight. We're not opposed to human spaceflight. We are for the new vision for space exploration. We just believe it has to be conducted with a strong science program, as was originally proposed. Now you can't start picking apart the vision for space exploration and say, well, we'll just build the rockets now and, and cut out science. That, that would be a, uh, a terrible mistake. Lou, we got uh, two or three minutes left. I'd like to hear about some of the other things you're up to. Before we uh, talk about why you're going to Europe, uh, another recent trip that you made was uh, to New Mexico. Yes, I came back from Washington, had one day at work, and had to go, and went to New Mexico <laughs> to uh, observe a Japanese test of a lunar penetrator. Uh, they've been trying for years to uh, develop penetrators. The United States actually built penetrators for Mars, uh, but they uh, didn't succeed on the 1999 mission. Uh, nobody knows why those penetrators were lost. Uh, the Russia tried the penetrators also for Mars, but uh, they failed on launch, the Mars 96 mission. Japanese are trying to develop them for the moon uh, and a mission called Lunar A. Uh, they've had some development problems, but these tests that they just did at the Sandia National Laboratory in New Mexico seem to have worked well. They, they were just conducted this week. Uh, preliminary results indicate that all the instruments survived the uh, impact into the uh, into the surface. The penetrator was buried underneath the ground. They were, but it was still able to communicate and uh, does seem like all the instruments are working. The full results of that penetrator test will take probably a few weeks to analyze when the, when the Japanese test team gets back home and, and uh, is able to analyze the results. But it would uh, be a great milestone. Uh, you know, the penetrator is the only really novel method that's being proposed among all the nations uh, planning missions to the moon. So uh, we're wishing them great success in this effort, and they're our close colleagues. It's, it's hard, part of our building uh, an international constituency uh, uh, for space exploration. Almost mind-boggling to think that electronics could be built that could withstand that kind of an impact, but uh, I, we hope they pulled it off. Tell us about uh, this trip to Europe that you are leaving on in about, what, five minutes? Yeah, the uh, uh, it's the same point, uh, Matt. Uh, I'm going to Europe to discuss international cooperation and lunar exploration uh, with five nations going to the moon and Europe having a spacecraft there now. Uh, with the vision for space exploration uh, needing a stronger base of international support, Planetary Society as a non-governmental organization can uh, move between the space agencies and the governments and, and uh, make suggestions that are somewhat out of the box and try and bring uh, some efforts together. The other thing we're trying to do, of course, is just to work with all of these nations, be part of their missions, build up our membership in other countries. Uh, and so I guess the challenge, I think, for all of us at the Planetary Society is to not just develop a, uh, an American constituency for, for space exploration, but a worldwide constituency uh, so that uh, synergistically a, a lot of things, uh, great things can be done at the moon and Mars and uh, Europa and uh, searching for planets around other stars. These are, these are all international efforts. Well, Lou, have, a, have an enjoyable and productive trip. Well, thank you, Matt. And uh, as always, thank members of the Planetary Society for listening to your show, uh, the ever-growing number of members, and, and uh, even reaching out now to non-members uh, of the society uh, who are listening to this show. And uh, 
uh, hopefully we'll all be enjoying the fruits of uh, some of these missions. Thanks, Lou. Lou Friedman is executive director and co-founder of the Planetary Society and the leader of the uh, SOS, the Save Our Science campaign, that recently made its appearance in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back with Bruce Betts in this week's edition of What's Up after this return visit by Emily. I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. What causes Triton's geysers? It's called a solid-state greenhouse. Scientists noticed that the geysers seemed to be concentrated in one band of latitudes in the southern hemisphere, the same latitudes at which the sun would be overhead to an observer on Triton's surface. This correlation strongly points to solar heating as the culprit. But at Neptune's distance from the sun, solar heating is 900 times weaker than on Earth, and almost all of Triton's volatile materials, its water, methane, carbon dioxide, and nitrogen, are frozen solid. It may be that the frozen nitrogen takes the form of transparent crystalline ice that acts much like the glass in solar panels. The nitrogen ice allows the weak sun to pass through it to darker materials underneath. The darker materials absorb the sunlight and re-radiate it in infrared wavelengths that are blocked by the nitrogen ice trapping the heat. The subsurface materials are heated to the point where they sublimate to gas. That gas exerts tremendous pressure, which, sooner or later, pushes open a crack to the surface through which the gas erupts in a geyser. Triton probably looks a lot like Pluto. We'll have to wait and see if Pluto also has geysers. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. we got Bruce Betts on the phone this week. He's the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society, and he is here to tell us about the night sky, got a new trivia contest, and uh, probably a whole bunch of other uh, stuff that uh, might be fun to listen to. Bruce, welcome. Thank you very much. Yeah, I hope it's fun. Night sky, got a bunch of planets. Even Mercury's poking its head up low in the west, northwest after sunset, getting a little bit higher. Each evening, it's still a, a tough sea, but if you look just after sunset, it's still pretty bright. It's far to the lower left of Capella, for those of you playing the stellar chart game. You can also check out very easily uh, up above it, Mars and Saturn. They are growing closer and closer together. They will be uh, coming closest together, having a so-called conjunction on June the 17th. And uh, that you can also see low in the west shortly after sunset. And you can contrast the kind of reddish-orangish of Mars with the kind of yellowish of Saturn. And uh, over on the other side of the sky, you've got the brightest object up there. Can't miss it in the evening. It is Jupiter, uh, brightest star-like object in the evening sky. And in the morning sky, it has to yield to Venus, which is even brighter than Jupiter, as it will have want to do. You can see that over in the east in the pre-dawn sky. Move on to this week in space history. It was kind of a Venus week. I mean, there were a lot of different things that happened. 1989, Voyager 2 began taking observations of Neptune. But we also had several launches, particularly of Soviet uh, landers in history, including Venera 9, the first lander to successfully return a picture from the surface of Venus. And how appropriate, how appropriate, Matt, that uh, <laughs> Venus Express 
the European Space Agency mission, the first mission of Venus in several years, is just starting to take its science data now, just starting its science uh, mapping orbit. You know, you mentioned uh, Venera 9. I knew you were going to bring that up today. And I looked it up, very handily displayed at planetary.org. It has that typical Soviet Russian look to a probe. Now, this is not a put-down because they have an incredible incredibly successful record with their probes but it just looks kind of like it's assembled from stuff they found in a military surplus store or from boiler parts and it's huge this thing is big it looks like it's made of cast iron <laughs> yeah yes they, they definitely had a different style and flair and and to their credit as you say they're the only ones who have uh, successfully landed on the surface partly by using these things that are basically tanks flown to the surface of Venus. Exactly. <laughs> they are funny when you're used to looking at, if you're used to a lot of the different American kind of spindly looking landers and you get the, the Soviet serious lander. Really, a lot of our guys, you know, also extremely successful, but they look like the Russian probes that kick sand in their face. <laughs> Yeah, they're gonna, they'd have to start on a, on a workout program. But, uh, <laughs> we better go on. <laughs> that's why we focused on Mars, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, before I come up with more bad jokes, uh, we'll leave those for later in the show and move on to... Brandon Space Ooh, musical. I know, kind of wacky, kind of crazy. Hey, speaking of uh, U.S. landers, the Viking landers, their 30th anniversary is coming up pretty soon in July. Did you know, Matt, that originally Viking Lander 1's landing date was selected to be July 4th, 1976, of course, the bicentennial of the United States. But when they got to Mars, started taking pictures with the orbiters, they got a little surprised that their landing site wasn't the nice, smooth, fun place they thought it was going to be. So they uh, backed off and uh, picked a different landing site where Viking 1 did successfully come down on July 20th. Uh, you asked me uh, if I knew, and I will tell you, yes, I did, because as a kid, I found a way to sneak into JPL for that for that landing. <laughs> so, so yes, I was following the story. I, I was doing it as a college reporter and had no business being there, but but uh, security was lax. So. <clears throat> so you didn't, like, cut the fence and run on. You actually at least made up a story about being a radio person. Yeah, actually. Well, I was at a real radio station, all of 10 watts worth, and, uh, <laughs> but it was great to be there. And, you know, July 20th, no slacker for a, a good uh, space day. No, indeed. The seventh anniversary of the first human signing on the moon. Can't fool me. Well, actually, <laughs> you, you can. That wasn't, that wasn't a challenge. So moving on to the trivia contest, we asked you, who was the third space agency or country to have a spacecraft orbit the moon? Of course, the Americans and the Soviets were going crazy doing such things in the 60s. But who is the third? How do we do, Matt? Many, many entries. I don't think we had any that were incorrect, but different facts provided by different people. Our winner this week is Michael Caps. Michael Caps. I can't really tell you where he's from because it's an APO. So, uh, Michael, very, uh, very likely serving uh, in the United States military. Maybe we'll uh, hear from him and he'll let us know. But uh, Michael got it right. He said Japan put what was originally called the Muses A spacecraft into orbit around the moon. It was renamed Hyten. Do you know, am I pronouncing that correctly? I hope I am. Uh, sure, that's exactly right. Thank you. <laughs> well, we do have some listeners in Japan. Feel free to correct us. But I'll say domo arigato, just, to, just the same. 
So, Michael, we're going to send you out a uh, Planetary Radio T-shirt for uh, getting this into us. We thank you for entering. We thank all of you for entering the contest. And here's another opportunity from Bruce. For uh, the following question, remember, you can go to planetary.org slash radio, find out how to enter our trivia contest and win the fabulous Planetary Radio T-shirt. We all know Yuri Gagarin was the first Soviet in space. Who was the second one? Who was the second Soviet cosmonaut in space? Go to planetary.org slash radio. What do you think, man? I think they want to get that name to us by 2 p.m. on Monday, June 12th, and one of them is going to win a Planetary Radio T-shirt. I'd put money on it. Well, I wouldn't put, I wouldn't send, I, they'll win a T-shirt. <laughs> okay. That's the important part. Yeah. All right. Are we done here, man? I think we are. All right, everybody. Go out there. Look up in the night sky and think about flowers in the sun. Thank you and good night. Better go at night. <laughs> He's Bruce Betts. He's the director of projects for the Planetary Society. And he does join us every week here for What's Up. Moments later, Bruce told me he had specifically envisioned a hibiscus flower in the sun. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. We'll be back next week with another jaunt around the solar system. Maybe we'll even dip our toes in the Milky Way. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>